we basically, it's a very simple process. That we, Is it always the most beautiful process? No. But what we've learned is we can make comparable yields to what we would have made had we gone back to our more traditional farming practices. This episode is the second part of a conversation between Kara Kroger, a sustainable agriculture specialist with the National Center for Appropriate Technology's Southwest Regional Office in San Antonio, Texas, and Dr. Chris Grodegut from Hereford, Texas. Chris is a local veterinarian, farmer, and stockman, and he's a cutting-edge producer of organic crops and livestock. He and Kara discuss ways he's found to do more dryland farming using as little water as possible to sustain his fields by converting the farm back to native grasslands that support cattle. Let's listen. So this conversation is a continuation from last week's podcast. And in that podcast, we talked a lot about um, Panhandle and its reliance on the Ogallala Aquifer and how recharge happens in the Ogallala Aquifer. And Chris has made a lot of management transitions in order to uh, help reduce his need to pull from the Ogallala Aquifer. Uh, pull water from there. And uh, so we talked a little bit about how that worked last in the last podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the cost of making some of the transitions he's made in his management and um, some of the marketing considerations. Um, so, Chris, I am looking forward to continuing this conversation today. And let's go ahead and get started. One of the things I wanted to ask about, you know, one of the things that deters people from making these changes is that they know that there can be a loss of profit while while transition is happening. And so um, I, I know that I, I believe that you experienced this, but then in the long term found that you were actually saving money because of not having to draw from your wells as much and, and pay for that irrigation water. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've rationalized balancing ecology with economics? Well, first of all, there's a if when we're when we're viewing the the process of whole farm economics uh, and whole community economics and things like that, when we look at uh, the value of real estate which in a farming operation, if the farm is owned, if the farmland is owned by the operator, which in our case, that is the case. We don't rent any acreage uh, from, it's all family held, okay? And mm -hmm. in our case, um, we have to allocate what, did, what, amount, what was the cost of the water that we pulled out of the ground, what did it cost to pump, and what was the value of the water for ourselves or future generations as we pump it out, what is that really costing our family and costing our community? Uh, because uh, if we don't have... Now, in our case, we the, the data strongly, strongly suggest that by the changes we've made that recharge is occurring and it's occurring actually quite efficiently. Um, and that, you know, if you, you know, if you look at the timelines that have been suggested for recharge, 
um, being extremely long, you know, at the rate, if we would quit pumping and we look at our average incline of water, um, we would be, we could be back at a really great status with our water table in, in, you know, less than a hundred years. And so, and that may be very area specific, okay? But, so, what we had to look at, yes, we did go through a cash decline in revenue during the transition because as you take it out of production, there's a period there before it's really not ready to, to graze or grow something else on. You lose two or three or four or five years of optimizing production and actually I think it I, I really think it will take longer than that to get it to full grazing potential however one of the tools that we have learned to utilize uh, in the seeded native grassland areas or there is we have areas that we've actually just not even seeded that we're letting go back to native grass and it's it's a slower process but it's it's happening Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've learned is the majority of grasses that we're growing that grow naturally in our region, the vast majority, are warm season perennials. Um, and we have some cool season perennials and some cool season annuals, but the majority are warm season plants. So one of the tools that we that we accidentally incorporated because uh, of a need for making more money because it cost us some to do it, to do this was we started no-till planting directly into native grass stands, either 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 established stands or developing stands, and and that's done organically so that we're not spraying the ground. We may graze the ground before we do it or right after we do it, or we may run a a mower a big a big uh, mower across the top of it to mow down to get to make sure there's no standing residues and flat to where it really protects that soil and we're and it allows us to plow to plant more into a mulch so we we don't lose any, as much water and so, you so use a, uh, a flail a flail mower sorry Chris no we don't use a flail mower we should but we actually use a uh, a horizontal blade Schulte shredder. Uh, it's a thirty foot shredder. It's it can go we can go nine or ten miles an hour. We use uh about a third of the fuel that we would have used had we run a what in the plains are commonly called there's there there's these uh a real common tool is what they call a, it's a chisel plow that has sweeps on it and runs from one to three inches deep just to undercut the material. And there's variations of that to these great big blade blade plow type units that we've used before uh, for tillage. And to go away from that, we found that we could we could shred it down for a third of the cost and do it faster than we could if we were plowing. And so, uh, when we have livestock, when we have enough livestock available, we employ the livestock first. If we if if we're green and wet and it's good and we need to get it knocked down first beforehand, we'll 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 run that big shredder. Um, or and we've even done some deals where we no till first into the into into the plant material and then shredded it off right afterwards. Uh, and and have had have had 
reasonable success in any of those methodologies. The key on that is to is to put those acres in in pasture cropped acres is what the term is. Colin Sites in Australia is credited with uh, coming up with the concept. Um, unfortunately, we tried it and then learned about Colin Sites, but we kind of got the the cart before the uh, before the horse once again. Um, and uh, if we if we do it during our wet cycles. Uh, that's one way we can really make up for some of that loss of income that was made by reducing our irrigation, at least short-term cash flow. So, but we, and we can do that with very little expense because we've just eliminated all of the cost of herbicides and tillage that when we did that. So we've got a little, a little bit of shredding cost or we've got some grazing costs, which then is actually grazing income. And, um, and uh of course we still have a fertility cost we use composted cattle manure or cattle manure out of our local feeding uh facilities some of it's aged for a long time before it's ever used we'll spread that on the on 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 the surface uh if we're short on 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 nutrients um but um we basically it's a very simple process that was is it always the most beautiful process no but what we've learned is we can make comparable yields to what we would have made had we gone back to our more traditional farming practices. And we do it with less cost. So by doing that, we have majorly reduced our labor costs on the operation, and we've majorly reduced our equipment needs on the operation. So we basically we have some smaller tractors for odds and ends and mowing ditches and things like that. And, Moving the occasional bale of hay if we need to move a bale of hay around. We don't, we don't, we no longer produce hay on our operation. We do buy a little bit, um, for, for the, for the livestock, uh, when they're in pens or whatever. But other than that, we're, we're not doing that. Um, and, and so, uh, one of our big, our big cost savings was the fact that we just don't use as much equipment anymore. So we've gone mm-hmm. from, four or five tractors that were in the 200 to 300 horsepower range to one. And we operate our farming operation. I I am, a, as you said, I'm a practicing veterinarian. I have a practice in Hereford, Texas. And we stay very, very busy with that. And I, and when I'm not there, I'm out. I'm either with my family here on the farm working side by side with them or somewhere else in the farm working. And, um you know we do this with with uh a couple of family members that are are school aged and uh one full time farm employee who's here running around the farm when I'm at the practice and making sure the details that I can't get to are intended to and so it's a you know by by changing the word grass based agriculture we become a more efficient operation from a just day-to-day operations perspective and we've reduced our overall cost of operations significantly um but it hasn't um that that is the the first three or four years of going down that road that is the hardest thing to do and to stomach what it's going to do to your lifestyle during that three or four years that's hard on a lot of people to to understand and if you're using outside financing on anything you do, that's also something that's very difficult for the financial sector to understand. 
Now, once they see the well level stabilizing and going up, uh, and and it appears to us that we probably, you know, from a mathematical perspective, we our normal day in day out recharge is somewhere appears to be somewhere between a million two and a million eight gallons a day of just recharge. If so, if we weren't irrigating, that would be roughly the amount of water on a day by day basis, even if. It's you know, and it it doesn't come day by day. It comes by great big by the big rainfall events. Okay, but if if we can store, if we just say a million and a half gallons a day, well, that that's at 150 gallons a person. That that's a lot of that's that was. Oh, I mean, so you can sustain a you can sustain a, a pretty good sized city doing that. By just yeah. saving that water that's going on, and so it, it it makes these, or at least a mid-sized city, it makes a mid-sized city that might not be viable viable, or it makes a large, you know, in our area we have some really large cattle feed lots, and uh, that are some of which are extremely well managed, and you know you could you could uh, you could that would be the water requirement, drinking water requirements about a hundred thousand head of cattle. It's a lot of animals. That if you weren't so if you give if you to get a greater understanding of the problem on the plains, everyone wants to blame uh, the livestock, and the livestock industry takes a lot of water, no question about it. However, the plants to feed the livestock take significantly more water than the livestock themselves. And if the irrigate if the model for livestock production is based solely on irrigated agriculture, then the products they produce is ecologically very water inefficient. However, if it's based on a dry land cropping model that is really growing plants that are not viable for human consumption in their normal state, such as the native grasses, then all of a sudden livestock production becomes a very viable water alternative for low water areas or people that are trying to conserve large amounts of water becomes extremely sure. viable sources of food. Quite sure. And so Quite it's sure. a matter of management. So it's like so many things. It's a matter of management and perspective, both. Yeah. I don't know if I answered so, your question there, but. No, yeah, ahead. I think you did a very good job. That was very thorough. Thank you. Um, I am curious about two things. Um, one is when did you go organic? And uh, I know that your your crops are organic. Uh, but the second is, well, I guess there's three questions. So when did you go organic? The second one is were you running livestock before you started converting your land? Did you, you utilize livestock um, prior to that or was bringing livestock Onto into your operation a new thing, and then the third question is: um, Do are the livestock um, direct marketed, or how do you operate the livestock? Okay, Kara, here's how. Here is our to answer all three questions. First of all, we moved into organic agriculture. We started the move in the late nineties. So 1998, 1999 is when we had the realization that we needed to look at something different. And we started, I believe we first started uh, 
selling organic production in about 2001 or 2002. So we've been at this organic game right at 20 years or a little over as far as learning the game and learning the, the methodologies and the thought processes of organic farming. And um, that was a, a move to be less dependent on, on, on chemical agriculture and uh, because what people don't realize, those agricultural chemicals that people use, A, we, uh, there's a lot of variability on, one, the safety of some of those products, and two, they cost a lot of money. And so when you combine those two and you compare it to the fact that at that time that margins were not really good, it kind of made it made it an obvious move. We should try it, and like so many things, most people will say you should step slowly into something new. Well, we're not real good at trying to do two things at once. So when we started moving and start seeing any sign of success, we move rapidly, and and so or relatively rapidly. And and so we transitioned our entire operation at one time. Wow. And okay. instead of trying <laughs> to do a dual system, it was just simpler to operate as a single model system of yes, we're gonna we're just gonna be organic on everything and we're going to adopt those principles and, and get certified by USDA certified accreditor accredited certifier and and that's what we did. So that was the easy part. We all at that time and prior to that time, uh this farm has always had uh some level of livestock production on it. Only during brief periods of the history of this farm were there no livestock involved in the operation. Okay? So there's always mm-hmm. been some level of of oper- of livestock. Now the way we operate livestock today is significantly different than we did in the past. In the past, uh, the, when it was all tilled land pretty well, except for the playa lakes themselves uh, or the grass areas around the playas, when when that was being done, uh, we ran cattle on wheat pasture and stalks and, and crop residues in the wintertime. And then we would essentially be devoid of livestock except for a small cow herd in in the rest during the rest of the year. So we'd run cattle from uh, September, October, or November all the way through March, April, or May. And then June, July, and August, we wouldn't have any livestock on the place except for a few cows. And now uh, our main focus today is we're predominantly a cow-calf and stalker operator, stalker operator, i.e. we're keeping our calves and making them bigger. We also run sheep on this operation. And so we have a ewe uh, a flock and and keep those lambs and get those to market-ready weight. And uh, at the junction we're at right now, because of time, not because of desire, but because of time, we have not made the move to direct marketing those animals. That doesn't mean that we have not considered it. We have considered it uh, quite a lot at times. 
and um, just did not make that move yet. So we sell we sell our animals uh, through more traditional channels, and um, and and just strictly it, it just strictly strictly as a function of time more than. Uh, a desire to do something different. I think we we've done well enough at the crop farming side, even with the grass, that I guess we haven't felt felt forced to do that yet. But that has been our longer term goal. As a better way to put it, it's still a goal for the operation. It's just it's just you you we have to be able to manage it really well. And if we're going to put something out there in the market, um, it has to be right for what the consumer wants. That's the way we look at it. Sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. And um, so I'd just like to go back to the organic uh, certification again. So getting certified in Texas in the late 90s, just, you know, a couple years after organic certification even became a thing, right? So you were a very early adopter. um, And Texas is still very, very behind the curve in terms of percentage of farms that are certified organic. Um, how did you get tuned into that um, at that time? I know that a lot of the certified organic farms that, that do exist in Texas, there's quite a few in the panhandle, right? And whether they're cotton. Yeah. Uh, I know there's a few cotton, uh, I mean, a lot of organic cotton in the panhandle because of the premium on the, uh, you know, the return, um, the return on investment. So I am just wondering, you know, how you got tuned into that at that time and um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your story and if you have any thoughts about uh, why more people don't go that route um, or or some of the things, some of the reasons why you see people going organic um, now where they didn't before. Well, Fortunately, that that is one of our advantages of being here in Desmond County, Texas. Uh, there was a small company uh, that was started here uh, many years ago. That uh, this year is actually no longer in existence. It's been bought and sold and traded, and it had a long history of in the organics. It was earlier was in the game before. Um, before the certification process by USDA was even in place. So there was a a gentleman here by the name of Frank Ford who I knew when I was growing up. I didn't know Frank well, but I knew Frank well enough. And and Frank was a fighting Texas Aggie, uh, Texas A&M graduate, and uh, him and a gentleman who was a pioneer in in the sorghum production in the United States by the name of George Warner, there were friends, and Frank got selling product to people in the north uh, western part of the United States, and started a little company called Arrowhead Mills. And uh-huh. uh, I, so that had a local presence. And my family, my father was also at one time involved in a flour mill and company that did work with them. So we had some idea, we had some understanding of the organic business from that level. We also had a wonderful, wonderful neighbor by the name of Ralph Diller, who was a wonderful, who was a wonderful farmer, still a wonderful neighbor, who had been in organics for a long time. He had he had adopted the principles early on, 
And so I had a front row seat to watch Ralph do his wonderful work in organic agriculture and learn from him uh, some of the things that worked and didn't work work and and adapt to you know adapt some of his thinking into into our farming and how we can make it work because uh, there's a lot of ways to do it right and so we were so before the certification process was ever in existence we were already uh, maybe not intentionally learning about organics but just by observation, learning about organics, okay? And and then the time came that it looked like we needed to adopt it on a, on, a, on on look at adopting it, and we made the move to do that. And and yes, us not unlike other farmers in our region, adopted it uh, as much from a what we thought was right for the culture and the environment. It was as much uh, adopted from an economics perspective of, hey, we can do we can do both. We can have a better life for our farm and our family, and we can uh, try to to learn to farm in a way that maybe it's better for the earth. And what we learned is that some of the technologies of some of the methodologies in organic agriculture are um, there's problems in chemical agriculture, i.e., what, what are the toxins doing to our climate and our earth and our plants and our rivers and our streams? And we have the same problem. We Until we went this other direction of going more grass and, and trying to maintain perennial covers, we had the problem of how do we keep the the soil in place to keep it from blowing because the problem that we the way we originally practiced organic agriculture was it required too much tillage and it may you know, when the wind wasn't blowing the farms to the to the conventional eye of, the, of agriculture would say that looked great because there wasn't a weed in sight because we cut we'd undercut it with our plows and but from a soil health perspective that part of the deal really had some things to improve on. And and so um, that was a really a challenging deal of, of the realization of we've still got, we've made a big change culturally from going from conventional agriculture, going toward no-till and doing some no-till. So we're shutting that off. We're going to go back to plowing some and going organic that route to, oh, my gosh, we have to figure out how to do organic and no-till at the same time, which is where we're at now, is trying to improve that system of of farming organically in a no-till fashion uh, to protect our soil and protect our resources, protect our water, and and still make uh, reasonable revenues doing it and and still have a product that that the customers are going to want and the quality of product they're going to want. So, and we've seemed to, right. we seem to be making it through that transition. It tells it tells you the power of the plant is much greater than we want to realize. It's really plants are amazing. They are. They are really, really fascinating. Um, make this world a really, really good place to be, in my opinion. <laughs> um, 
So one last question on the organics. Are you marketing your cattle as organic cattle? No, not right now. We are not right now. We are we have we operate them organically. We have not even certified mm-hmm. them. So we've only been certifying the cropland organically. But our cow herd and our sheep flock are managed in a way that they could be certified easily. Easily, mm-hmm. easily. There would I mean there, there's actually no transition time to it because of the way we mark, we operate them. And um, it's mainly a function of if we were closer to the urban markets, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's it's a good, you know, it's a good seven-hour drive to San Antonio from from here. And oh, longer than that, closer, yeah. <laughs> yes, had we been closer to the to the urban markets, it would be much easier to go that direction on marketing. And the mm-hmm. other, the, the big the big killer for us in it, we would have to at this juncture, uh, we would e- we would either have to contract with a small slaughter facility. Or we would have to build a small slaughter plant, and right. both of which, especially in the time of the COVID, are not an easy process to undertake. But that doesn't mean we wouldn't nope. consider doing it. It's just not at this time. At some point, yep. very likely. So someone gets yes, the benefit and- of buying organic calves and 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 uh, and taking them and doing what they need to with them without having to pay the premium. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, you know, that being said, uh, with COVID uh, shining its light on on meat processing in this country, there actually are quite a few um, funding opportunities that are occurring um, through grants and different things like that for helping people sla- start small slaughter uh, slaughterhouses. Um so that's a that's one thing that's coming out of this uh, pandemic that will be interesting to see how that develops a little further because you know that was a very um, tough tough scenario to see go down um, at the start of the pandemic. So it's very interesting. Redeveloping um, local food uh, systems will be important. You're right. <laughs> yes, yes, it definitely will. Um, so. Keep, uh, you know, your eye out for some of those grants, you know, uh, for our listeners and for um, uh, for yourself, Chris, maybe down the line. Um, well, Chris, this has been really, really great, and I so much wonderful information with us today. Um, I would like for you to be able to share any last words that you have, um, and if you have any specific advice for for other farmers, you know, our listeners are, are farmers and ranchers all across the country, uh, very smart producers, uh, many very advanced and many just starting out. So if you have any last words of wisdom or anything else you want to share today, we'd be glad to hear it. Carol, here, the, the scenario that we've gone down, everyone's going to have a little different path. Most importantly, I think uh, the idea of owning the truth of your situation and the impact of what you do and what your farm does and on your on your local environment, owning that is a very important first step if you're wanting to change or your community is going to change. Um, 
not being afraid of the economic ramifications of it, of changing, are very important because oftentimes you learn that uh, it makes it may make you actually more viable long term. And uh, anytime you can uh, make similar income with less cost, that's a positive. Um, it takes less, you're taking a lot of risk off the table. Uh, I know culturally it is a hard change for many people to think in those terms. But one of the guiding things that made us want to go ahead and do it, it wasn't the fact that our wealth capacities were horrible. Our wealth capacities were still relatively good for our county. What made us change was that we did not want to be in a position that we were forced to change and not be good at the change before the change was, at the time the change was imminently needed. And so I think what we fail to realize is that the world is changing much quicker than any of us can fathom. Um, and uh, I think that we have to understand that we have to be extremely proactive in those changes if we're going to be a viable part of our community and really be a, a good player because there is nothing gained uh, both from a cultural perspective or from a environmental perspective of maintaining the mindset that while well, my neighbor's not using the water, I might as well pump it out. Or <laughs> I'm just going to race with him to get to the bottom first. Because I think that is, that is akin to um, going to the bar and saying, we're going to drink until we're all dead. And right. I think that's yeah. a very, very unsafe way of looking at it. And, <laughs> and, and, what are you te- and what are you teaching your children? And what are you teaching? Maybe if you don't have children, what are you teaching the people around you by being that way? It's We're not helping so- make the world a better place. Yeah, maybe you have more money in your pocket today, but is that is that a durable competitive advantage? To quote Warren Buffett, he, he, always, he, he would talk about durable competitive advantages. And if I think of our farming operation, if we have water remaining here for centuries and neighboring farms pump their wells dry, they they no longer have a durable competitive advantage, and because yeah. at least our family won't be having to leave uh, because the water table ran dry. I think that's it, and I think there's many many people that way. And and when we create a problem in one part of the world, we create these refugee problems where people have to move, whether it's political or governmental or environmental, and all you do is compound problems. In neighbors, in neighborhoods, or places that you think, hey, this is—it's like, okay, the Panhandle dried up. We're all going to move to Dallas. Well, do you think Dallas is well equipped to handle another million people coming in from the Panhandle? I doubt it. Yeah. Anyway, I appreciate what you've done by by, uh, helping us get the message out there that perennial cropping and and things like that have have a potential, a really solid potential place at the table. Yes. Well, you know, one of the things that I haven't mentioned yet today is um, the Soil for Water Project or program, which is uh, a program that we operate through our Southwest 
we have been operating it through our Southwest office at NCAT, and now we are taking it nationally. And uh, Chris is, uh, we just onboarded Chris into that program. And as part of that program, we are doing 16 different uh, ranch trials, uh, mostly in Central Texas, but because Chris is doing such interesting things, we have um, asked him to come on board. And so we're actually doing soil testing and looking at species cover and percentage 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 of species cover um, over the course of time to see how some of his pastures are changing. So um, we're very glad to have you in that program, Chris, and, and move uh move forward and see, you know, how how some of these things are changing and, and how quickly and what kind of changes in the soil occur because of it. And getting some some science from the soil. So we're glad to have you in that. And for those listeners who are interested, you can learn more about our project or, or our program at soilforwater.org. Um, we've also just opened up a network, uh, the Soil for Water Network. Right now it's only available in Texas, Colorado, New Mexico, and um, California, but we will eventually be spreading it to other small and growing from there. But it's open to livestock producers who um, who would like to learn more about regenerative agriculture from other livestock producers and also who would like to um, learn a little bit more about how to do some monitoring on their land to make sure that the changes that they are implementing are really having the effects that they would like to to uh, see. So, anyway, please visit soilforwater.org. And again, Chris, we're we're glad to have you in that program, and we're very thankful for you taking the time to do this podcast with us today. And I, um, yeah, I hope that you have a a, a good rainy spring up there. <laughs> well, right now we're still in the drought, so well, hopefully that'll change. Hopefully that will change, yeah. and it, if it doesn't change this year, it will in the next few years. And and we have to remember that droughts are totally normal, and they're just part of the the climate that we have to we have to navigate. So, and we appreciate everything that NCAT has done, and USDA, uh, particularly NRCS, has done, and and the people out there promoting soil health and and they're studying and working on it. Um, it's certainly going to take many, many, many people. Uh, thinking about those principles and thinking about how they apply to their environment to make it this world a little bit better place. Yes, absolutely. And thank you for the work you're doing. Um, and I, I am you. sure that you are a wonderful inspiration to many people in your community. So thank you and to your children. You know, I know that that's what you're Oh, we're blessed. Our family is very blessed to, to get to walk this walk anyway. Awesome, Chris. Okay. Well, we appreciate it, and uh, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information can be found in the notes. And please leave a comment and don't forget to subscribe. We'd also appreciate it if you could fill out a brief survey to tell us what you thought of the podcast. It helps us improve our content. A link to the survey is included in the notes. I'm your host, Rich Myers. Alan Puckett and I produce Atra Voices from the Field at the National Center for Appropriate Technologies headquarters in Butte, Montana, with support from the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program.
Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and did not necessarily reflect the view of the USDA or INCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.